Stanford University. I think that to achieve equity in a classroom, I think we first need to think about what does an equitable classroom look like? How, how would I know one when I see one, right? Um, realizing also that equity, classroom equity, can be seen or measured on a continuum, so that some classrooms are more equitable than others. Um, and we strive for more and more and more equity. Um, so one of the features of an equitable classroom is that all students have access to quality curriculum, intellectually challenging tasks, uh, equal status interaction uh, with their peers, with the teachers, and with the text of schools. And by text of schools, I mean the books, the manipulatives, you know, text writ large. Um, the focus on interaction comes from learning theory, comes from so much that we know in education that people learn by interacting. And so the emphasis on interaction is, I think, um, almost taken for granted in education, theoretically, but not practically. Because in so many classrooms, the only person who basically interacts with his or her mind or his or her words is the teacher. Uh, the kids are passively listening, um, sometimes are with it or not. Um, so interaction, real meaty interaction, is where I think the action is in learning. So for me, an equitable classroom actually is a classroom that has kids from diverse backgrounds, um, but demographic backgrounds, as well as to some extent diverse um, achieve, pre previous achievement and previous preparation, um, because those are the classrooms that many teachers encounter these days. They are not as diverse ethnically, and certainly not socioeconomically because our schools have become segregated, um, which is a huge problem for me um, because where are kids going to learn about democracy if not experiencing it themselves? Um, so that's, that's, my, that's you know, the ultimate agenda in all of this. Um, and so a classroom where the students can see each other as competent, as contributing, as learning, um, as colleagues and as peers, while engaging in serious content, is for me the ideal. They solve problems that are like real life problems. They address dilemmas. Uh, they have things to talk about. And they do that democratically, and they do that equitably. Um, that's, that's the ultimate. Now, I think that what, what people sometimes mistake it for is friendliness. Okay, so um, 
because you know group work is seen as the answer, <laughs> we do see classrooms that are that classrooms that use group work are indeed friendlier because kids know each other's names. Uh, they talk to one another a little bit more. But that still does not address the issue of the equal status interaction. And so they can be friendly, but they don't necessarily see particular students as competent, as smart, and therefore can't see them as contributing to them or contributing to the group task. The, the work that, that we did um, this program for complex instruction, which is an approach, a, a, a pedagogical approach to heterogeneous classrooms, um, has a very solid theoretical, conceptual knowledge base, as well as solid empirical research to substantiate the claims that we make. Um, Elizabeth Cohen, who was my mentor, my professor, the um, work that we did has come from um, a particular sociological theory that looked at the phenomenon of status processes. Okay. Uh, it was developed here at Stanford in the social department. And uh, what Elizabeth did, she brought that um, theory into the classroom. And as she used to say, it was, it, it, at first she did a lot of um, experiments in the labs, you know, here at Stanford and, and kind of lab settings. But then um, her graduate students, including me, uh, forced her, so to speak, to go into the classroom and become real. Uh, and so for many, many years, we actually did the research and the development and the documentation of what we did in real-life classrooms with real-life teachers. And we learned a lot. Uh, as I said yesterday, there were about 25 dissertations that came out of that year, you know, for many years. Um, people looked at different aspects of how this approach works in the classroom. They looked at how um, the school supports the teachers and so on and so forth. Uh, but you asked me specifically about where the finding of quantity and quality of interaction predicts learning outcomes come from. That particular finding was replicated over and over and over again in different at different grade levels, in different subject areas, uh, from elementary school. I even have a master's thesis here where someone tried it in a kindergarten, um, to high school. Okay, and so at first we just went into classrooms and counted the number of students who were actually engaged in interaction. Counted, went from group to group and counted them uh, rigorously. You know, there were observers and they were trained and there was inter-observer reliability. And we related that proportion of students at the classroom level to the average gain scores on different kinds of measures, both standardized tests, um, final unit essays that went with the essay, or short answer uh, essays, multiple choice uh, tests developed by us that 
went with the curriculum. And as I mentioned before, um, um, Ed de Avila, who was involved with developing the program early on, who's a psychologist, and my colleague, um, Rachel Benari from Israel, actually administered intelligence tests to kids who went through the program. And there were gain scores on the regular measures and also on these, so on these intelligence tests, which was to everybody's surprise because, you know, those are supposedly immutable. Um, so the relationship between quantity of talk, how many students are talking, and learning gains was evident. Then um, various graduate students wanted to go more into depth about the quality of the interaction. So what are they talking about? And so, for example, Ruth Cossey, her picture is right up there. <laughs> Ruth Cossey went into mathematics classrooms. She's a mathematic educa mathematics educator. She went into mathematics classrooms. And she found that some groups did more higher level math talk. So they weren't just describing or applying formulas in those group tasks, but they were describing patterns. They were justifying their answers more clearly with mathematical arguments. Um, they were asking questions rather than just giving answers and asking probing math questions. And so she looked at the quality of the math talk. Uh, and she found that in groups that had higher quality math talk, so it was a group measure, groups that had higher quality math talk, had a, it, for those groups, those kids in those groups had higher achievements than kids with lower quality math talk. And they communicated mathematically more fluently than kids with lower. Um, there were two dissertations that looked at, were interested in what's the science talk about, okay, the quality of the science talk. So, so they went deeper and deeper into those kinds of conversations, uh, I, I mean, those kinds of studies. Uh, then um, we did a study, um, there was a grant that, that I had from the Spencer Foundation that actually looked at kids who were English language learners and how their, the opportunities for them to interact with native or native-like speakers developed their English while talking about um, history, but this was a history classroom. This was a, um, actually in a school where if we had not done the study, um, the kids would have been in a separate track because it was a year-round school, and the English language learners were in separate tracks. And so we said, you know, we're here, let us do this study, let us bring in the kids to regular mainstream classrooms. And the best part was that on the outcome measures, there was no difference among the kids based on their linguistic background. So we had English only, fluent English proficient, a reclassified fluent English proficient, limited English proficient, and then what the school called transitional kids. Okay? The transitional kids were not supposed to be in these regular classrooms. 
And when we looked at their final work of these kids, in their achievement, there was no difference. The greatest achievement, by the way, the highest gain scores were among the limited English proficient kids, because they probably had the farthest to go. But um, it was, it's, it's, like you say, does it make sense if you want to teach somebody English not to have them interact with people who speak English? So as I mentioned before, the theoretical basis for, for complex instruction in particular comes from a theory called expectation state theory, expectation and status characteristic theory. Um, it's interesting that some of the phenomenon that this particular theory addresses are addressed by other researchers. So, you know, our own Claude Steele talks about stereotype threat. Um, you know, other people talk about similar kinds of phenomenon. And it seems to me that, that while we recognize the same phenomenon, sometimes the modeling of it is different, and therefore how you can intervene is different. Uh, the power of theory for me is that it gives you a model that then, if you understand the model and you understand what the processes are, you can intervene. You can say, well, if I see this link, hey, and I don't want it, then what can I do to cut it, right? That's, those are the intervening in the status processes that we talked about. So um, expectation states theory talks about, uh, has a concept called status characteristics. Status characteristics um, are um, characteristics uh, where society agrees that it is better to be in the high state than in the low state, right? So society agrees, or society knows, that it is probably be better to be rich than poor. <laughs> um, in certain societies, uh, more power and prestige is related to the high status characteristic if you're white than if you're a person of color. Um, gender is such a diffuse status characteristic, right? So, so more power and prestige uh, in certain situations are given to males then. And, and there are many other, you know, age sometimes, or um, it's interesting. Uh, then the theory talks about specific status characteristics that are specific for a particular situation. So as I, as I mentioned yesterday in classrooms, particularly elementary classrooms, your perceived reading ability is such a status characteristic. What's so amazing, there's a research done in, in uh, um, I think, the late 70s, Susan Rosenholtz, where kids, fourth graders, were asked to rank each other and themselves on their reading ability in classrooms. It's mind-boggling, but the kids were able to rank themselves, and their ranking corresponded to the teacher's ranking to an amazing degree. I mean, the correlation was, was very high. So kids know their place, don't they? So that's, that's very interesting. And then the theory also talks about something called status generalization. So that when I come to a situation and all I know about is that you're a good reader, 
and the task that we have to do has nothing to do with reading. We should build something. You know, a model airplane with Legos. I will still generalize from the fact that you're a good reader to your competence to building, for example. Okay. So expectations for competence are associated with, with those high and low status positions. And those expectations generalize. And so in every new situation, what is created is, a, is kind of a fixed set of expectations by people. What we want to do is create mixed set of expectations so that every situation that I come to, I really, I wouldn't know what to expect so much. I wouldn't know what to expect from you. But if I know that, hey, this particular task, building an airplane from Legos, first of all, I need to know what an airplane looks like. I have to have some imagination of taking those pieces of Lego and putting them together in such a way that they build an airplane. And so if I know that you can visualize that for me, you can explain it to me, I have a pretty good idea of how to make it stable. But it will take all of our competences and experiences to make that happen. And I won't just say, oh, Barbara, you're just the smartest. Why don't you do it by yourself? Or, you know, I'm just copying what you do. Okay. So we intervene in, in modifying people's expectations. And so not letting the stereotype threat that Claude talks about or the expectation for competence that this theory talks about bother our interactions. So, so again, and this is, um, like I said before, we have data. Okay, we try this out. We have data, and we could relate the rate in which the teacher um, talks about these kinds of things and makes these interventions to the rate of participation of individual students or the severity of the status problem per classroom. So there's data to support what I'm saying. Um, what we found uh, useful was that when teachers explain to the students that the task requires multiple intellectual abilities, okay? uh, so a particular task, uh, you need to make sure that you understand the text, you talk about the ideas, you summarize them in ways that make sense, you can explain it to them. Uh, you can synthesize, you can then make a visual representation of the poem that you read. You know, build a, a, a paint a beautiful painting out of it. Um, that, that, that particular task then requires so many different things to do uh, that number one, a single person will have a hard time doing it by themselves in 25 and a half minutes. Uh, and so I need everybody and I need everybody's expertise. Okay. And that really no one person is always successful at everything, which is a huge problem, by the way, for the kids who are always successful at everything in schools because the tasks are so narrow, which is why they are successful. But on these multidimensional, you know, broad, rich tasks, 
I need many different ways of being smart, many different ways. Um, so we are, um, you know, Howard Gardner talks about multiple intelligences, and it's, it's great work. And sometimes I want to say that probably the single most important thing that he did was that he made intelligence plural. He made intelligences, you know, so it's not only one. So just adding an S to the end of the word was like perfect for me. Um, so no, that's number one, to, to just make the kids aware that different kinds of uh, capabilities and strengths and talents that we can contribute that come from school but also from our outside experiences. Kids come to school with such rich repertoires that we never take advantage of, we never mind, we never give them opportunities to show how smart they are and they are incredibly smart. You know. Then when the students are actually working on these tasks and they require the multiple ability tasks, uh, uh, multiple abilities to, to perform them, or you know, different ways of being smart, I like to say that that way because it's so much more colloquial. Um, then as a teacher, I can go around and observe and give specific feedback to all students particularly to the students who have never before been seen by their peers as contributors or as smart. Okay. And so I'm changing expectations because if I say more and more, hey, you know, wow, look at him, look at what he did, that's changing expectations. Uh, and so when I enter a new situation, I won't automatically say, oh, this person is going to be the one who's going to solve the problem, and I can just sit back and, you know. But we all have, uh, we will all have to perform and, and do something to produce the task, to produce the product. I think that the message that, that we are trying to give is counter-normative for schools where everything is so narrow. It's counter-normative for teachers and it's counter-cultural in many ways. Uh, we are always wanting to find the best person in the whatever stupid measure we have for the, yeah, right? Um, and here it's more about let's look at the richness. Now, the good thing about all of this is that in the end, actually, the writing, the reading and the writing, and all those test-taking skills that the kids have to perform on are, are indeed there. You know, it's a false dichotomy that you say, well, if I have a rich task and I teach them all these higher order thinking and, you know, deep conversations, they won't do well on the test. But that's not true. That's a false dichotomy. That really is a false dichotomy. Uh, but it's hard. Um, I, I started with saying, what do equitable classrooms look like? Okay, and I said, all kids work on academically rich curriculum. Uh, both the teacher and all the kids uh, understand that they will have opportunity to demonstrate their smarts in different ways, by different means, on different occasions. They understand that being smart can be learned, that it's incremental and multidimensional. And finally, in an equitable classroom, and I know that that's where I get the most 
um, resistance is also probably lack of understanding is that the achievement is clustered around a narrow acceptable mean and that there are very few kids who are just below and some kids who are above okay so it's not a normal curve the achievement in an equitable classroom is not the normal curve because in the normal curve only 60% of the classroom are around the acceptable mean so what happens to the others um, and, and that's where I, I, I get a lot of flack, actually, from teachers about this. Yes, yes, because it's, it, they say it's not, how can that be? Because, you know, that means I won't grade on the curve or I, you know, won't have Fs, but I have to have Fs in my classroom just like I have to have As. I said, why? Why can't you have all As and the few A minuses and maybe a few A pluses for someone who's soaring? Um, so. And that's, that's different from standardized measures, right? That's very different. So if I have this, it just means I'm a great teacher. Look, all my students succeeded. Uh, but it's different. It's, I talk about achievement where I demonstrate what students know, what all students know, right, in, in this uh, graph. Uh, standardized test, actually, if an item does not discriminate Right? If you have some, an item that everybody knows how to respond to, that, that is taken out of the standardized test because it does not discriminate, right? because we have to have a normal curve, <laughs> whatever normal means. My step teachers who are these amazing people, they should go out and make a difference in that way and build equitable classrooms. That's, that's our job. Because, you know, if we don't do that, democracy won't be there. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.